Hello, everyone, and welcome to Employment Matters, a legal and HR podcast brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance, the world's largest network of labor and employment lawyers from the best law firms around the globe. I'm your host, Pete Waltz. As the Canadian border gradually reopens, COVID-19 testing, proof of vaccination, quarantine requirements all persist in various degrees. And as a result, international business travel and recruitment of foreign talent to Canada remains complex. In today's extended program, our guests will review the current legal landscape and offer some practical information on these and other topics, including cross-border movement of C-suite employees, consultants, and specialized service providers. Today's program is moderated by Shana French, a partner at Sherrard Coos in Ontario, Canada. As a bonus, we had the chance to survey some of our listening audience in advance to discuss and gather questions, and these will be presented by the panel in their commentary. Let's join Shana as she introduces the program and moderates the discussion. Hello, everyone, and thank you for being with us today. I'm Shana French, partner with Sherrod Coos LLP in Toronto. We're looking forward to a great discussion with you. I'd like to start by introducing you to our panelists for today's webinar. We have with us Andrea Baldwin, Immigration Law Practice Leader with Bartow Labor and Employment Lawyers in Nova Scotia, Brett Kavanaugh, Partner, McCurcher LLP in Saskatchewan, and Terry Simmons, Partner, Arnold Golden Gregory LLP in Georgia. I invite you to go to the ELA website to see their full bios. And now that you know our speakers, let's just jump right into it. To start us off today, I'm going to ask Andrea Baldwin if you can just give us a primer on the Canadian situation for traveling from the U.S. across to the Canadian border right now. Absolutely, Shana. Thank you. Hello, everyone. I'm joining you from Halifax, Nova Scotia today, and I'm one of the two Canadian immigration lawyers who will be speaking to give you a Canadian perspective today. And in a few moments, Terry will then talk to you about travel to Canada from the U.S. So let me begin from a Canadian perspective. The pandemic has changed things. It added additional layers and more considerations for crossing the Canadian border, be it for a business trip, a short-term work assignment, or relocating to Canada for employment. As a result, both employers and international business travelers have to consider much more than they normally do when contemplating sending an employee or a consultant across the border. In addition to giving thought to and considering what category the person qualifies for and, and can come to Canada under, it's also necessary to turn, to turn your mind to or turn our mind to, is the person even permitted to come to Canada? Uh, because the Canadian border is still, for all intents and purposes, closed. I am going to tell you in a minute about the, the gradual reopening and, and exciting development that came into effect. But, you know, is the person permitted to enter Canada? And do they have to quarantine for 14 days, including three days in a government-approved quarantine hotel? These are questions I never imagined I would be giving immigration advice on before March of last year. So things are much different now than they were a year ago, February. But even though there's many fewer people crossing the border, I have to say that I'm still busy. I know many of my colleagues were anxious when the border was closed. Uh, when you're in the immigration business, our livelihood revolves around bringing people across the border. But even though fewer people are traveling, because it's so much more complex, I think my panelists will probably agree that our clients need us more because it's more complex. 
No longer can somebody just get on an airplane to fly to Toronto for a business meeting for the day. There's additional layers. There is COVID testing, proof of vaccination and, and the like. And the rules have been changing so quickly and it's not over yet. Even though we're beginning to take our masks off and I know I'll be fully vaccinated this weekend, which is very exciting, but we're gonna see some of these restrictions and requirements in place for a long time. Another reason things are, are, have been so difficult is that airline personnel have been given unprecedented power to deny boarding to travelers who they don't think qualify for entry to Canada. And they're not always right, which is not surprising because you know airline ticketing agents and folks that so kindly look at our passport and direct us onto the plane aren't trained to interpret legislation. So it just adds to the complication and, and the level of preparedness that an international traveler must embark on before they, before they cross the border. And we're also, it's a bit of the wild, wild west because we're seeing inconsistent interpretations all the time. So we may think that a certain meaning will apply to a particular restriction. Sometimes it's not how it plays out on the ground. So let me transition into the, the, the meat of what I promised to tell you by saying that since March of 2020, there have been two sets of rules that apply to entering Canada. There is one set of rules that applies to entry from the US. And that's what I'm gonna tell you more about. And there is another set of rules that applies to travel from everywhere else in the world. And Brett will dive into that in more detail in a few minutes. So traveling to Canada from the US, these rules are thankfully more facilitative and they don't just apply to Americans. So this is about where your location of origin before you enter Canada. So they apply to anyone who's attempting to enter Canada who's in the US. And one of the real benefits of, of these more facilitative rules is that folks entering Canada from the US are still permitted to apply for a work permit at the Canadian border or as they're entering Canada. So if they're driving to Canada, that means that the land border crossing if they're flying to Canada, it means at the, at, the, at the first Canadian airport in which they arrive. So that is if they are visa exempt. The ability to apply for a work permit upon entry was much more pervasive and available before COVID-19, but right now you have to be entering from the US to, to avail of that benefit. So the rules for entry to Canada from the US, as I said, they're more facilitative. It is not an outright ban on entry, but it considers a traveler's purpose for entry. So in order to be permitted to enter Canada from the US, the traveler must be entering for a non-optional or a non-discretionary purpose. So you might ask what that means. And so the actual piece of legislation or the order in council that enacts this restriction says that Optional and discretionary travel they, is travel for tourism, recreation, or entertainment. But it's been interpreted to be a little more restrictive than that in the context of business travel. So when business travelers who ordinarily would cross the border frequently, be it somebody in the C-suite who has a responsibility for Canada and would therefore spend typically a week, a month in Canada or come for quarterly meetings, Many of those individuals have been sitting tight in the US, working from their computer and attending meetings by Zoom and, and MS Teams. 
because it's been it's been determined repeatedly, whether it's a senior manager or a university professor, that if the individual is coming to Canada to perform activities that can be effectively performed remotely from the US or anywhere else in the world, then their travel is deemed to be optional and discretionary. So part of what we've spent a long time doing is explaining why the individual needs to come to Canada. And I think that's a great time to turn things over to Brett and figure out what the on the ground experience has been for individuals who are making their way into Canada. Before we turn things to Terry, Brett, can you comment on that, the on the ground experience? So I I was just going to speak to the on the ground experience of these quarantine exemptions and trying to get them. And it is such a rigmarole for your clients that so far to date, my clients have actually been 100% successful, but in no way does it feel like that. It, It certainly feels like the issues and inconsistencies doesn't necessarily make it a win. So I, I certainly want people to know, employers to know that them and their workers need to be fully prepared, that it could go either way. And, and you essentially have to have a backup plan if you're seeking a quarantine exemption and have the employers on standby, which is not something you would have done in the past, you know, necessarily be on standby as your person's crossing the border in the middle of the night. But just by way of example, last week, I sent three people for the same job on the same flight to Canada and they got separated in immigration. One waltz through, one had them pour over the documentation. One was told at first that he was exempt in immigration primary and that he wasn't in secondary. Then we convinced them otherwise, but then had been processed as quarantine required in the app they use. So had to go back to secondary and redo it. And there ended up being a two and a half hour difference between the time they got through the border. And, And you just need to go in expecting such complications. As Andrea said, business executives certainly have more difficulties than hands-on workers. If you are perceived to be able to do your job by PC or by phone, then you likely could face a quarantine. Even if you're the most important person in your company, you could be CEO and owner and be quarantine required, but one of your workers might, might get quarantine exempt. They don't seem to care about the inconvenience or the cost to the companies or the individuals. All they care about is whether the essential service that the exemptions allow would be interrupted. So if the essential service would continue because you're on Zoom, they don't care that it's, it's inconvenient or costly to you. And then there's complications around the fact that different provinces have different essential services lists. And this vaccinated persons rollout was a complete mess and they didn't even update the app till noon. So if you traveled in the morning, you were out of luck. <laughs> well, and, and actually that's a, a, a great point is the vaccinated, the the advantage maybe that vaccinated travelers have. Andrea, can you comment on that? I sure can. So there was big news that came into effect on Monday, and that is that now if you are already permitted to enter Canada, so if you are a Canadian citizen or permanent resident, or you are otherwise eligible to enter Canada. So from the US, that means you are coming for a non-optional or non-discretionary purpose. If you're coming from elsewhere in Canada, Brett will go over some of those exemptions in a few minutes, but there are several exemptions for which others are are eligible to come to Canada. So for those folks who are eligible to come to Canada, they have had to quarantine for 14 days, including during the last couple of months, they've had to spend their first three days in Canada in, as I mentioned, a government approved hotel in Montreal, Toronto, Vancouver, or Calgary. 
So thankfully, those who are now fully vaccinated, they are able to skip the three-day hotel quarantine and then the balance of the 11 days in their final destination much easier than, than before when they had to demonstrate an essential purpose or that they fit into another very specific category, such as coming to Canada for the national interests or, or that the purpose of their travel in, in Canada was for the, the national interest. So to qualify for this vaccine exemption, you have to be asymptomatic. So you can't be coughing as you get on the plane. And you have to be able to demonstrate that you have received the, the full series of a Health Canada approved vaccine. Right now, there's only four vaccines on that list, but other vaccines that are being tested in Canada and may soon be approved will be added to that list. So for right, right now, that is the Pfizer, Moderna, AstraZeneca, or the Johnson & Johnson single-dose vaccine, or a combination of the two, as we're seeing many, many people are having. And you have to be fully vaccinated 14 days before you travel to Canada. And I actually, I, I'm going to jump right in on that, Andrea, because there is certainly a lot of interest for people on the vaccination rules and how that applies. And so one of the things that your crystal ball may do better than mine is to tell us when it's going to open for regular, non-essential, like that will reopen for that optional and discretionary travel. Any, any ideas? That's a great question. Now I am, it's as if I'm looking into a crystal ball and answering that question, and I don't have one in front of me, but there's been some speculation that the non-optional and non-discretionary requirement will go away, hopefully before the end of the summer, so that our American friends who have vacation properties in my province and elsewhere in Canada, or who haven't seen their extended family, in some cases their fiance in person, and we believe that'll happen as a higher percentage of the Canadian population becomes fully vaccinated. That's certainly what our prime minister has suggested. And currently approximately 39% of Canadians are fully vaccinated. And the rumor is that it's more than rumor, but it's nothing is official till it's formally announced. When Canada hits the 75% mark, that's likely when we will see more of the restrictions peeled away. Well, and certainly one of the hallmarks is what life looks like after July 21, if we keep extending it. One of the other questions which has come up and will come up a lot is where employers maybe don't want to deal with what Brett described on the cross-border travel. How do I just hire people to work in different countries? And we're going to get to that question a little bit later because this is, we're focusing on the immigration side of it. And we have another ELA webinar coming up in August that will focus on the employment law considerations, i.e. how do you pay for it and deal with someone being in another jurisdiction for purposes of wage and hour and that sort of thing. But before we move into more questions, I really wanna get Terry's take because a lot, of, a lot of our listeners are wondering about the situation in the U.S., Terry. And I understand that the U.S. also has strict travel bans in place, affecting travel from many countries around the world. And can you speak to whether there's a travel ban affecting Canadian citizens? And does it make a difference if we come in by air or drive through a border or, I guess, by sea, if someone's really creative? Can you speak to that, Terry? Well, first of all, hello and greetings from Georgia, from Atlanta Hartsfield, the world's busiest airport until last year when we lost that due to COVID, but we're coming back and we welcome 
all Canadians to fly down and visit us here in Georgia and throughout the United States. You're absolutely right. We have had a series of travel bans put in place in the United States, which has affected travelers from all over the world. We've seen travel bans put in place by President Trump. Then we saw those travel bans lifted. And then we saw President Biden put the travel bans back into place again. So right now we have travel bans affecting the Schengen area, European area, UK, Ireland, China, Brazil, South Africa, and Iran. And so we've been working very hard as American immigration lawyers and applying for what's called an NIE, National Interest Exception, authorizing people in these particular areas to fly directly into the United States. So a lot of people will ask me who are resident in Europe or in another area which is subject to the travel ban, hey, uh, can I fly through Canada or Mexico or somewhere else and then just enter the United States? How will they know that in fact I originated in Europe or UK or another jurisdiction? Well, they know. Customs Border Protection always knows. And so that's not a possibility unless you spend 14 days in a non-banned jurisdiction and then enter the United States. So practically speaking, I represent a lot of companies who produce machinery and systems in Europe, for example, and they have sent their technicians into Canada to do after-sales service, which is authorized and essential in a lot of cases. And they've spent 14 days in Canada and then they've been able to enter the United States. So that's been a method we've used to bring folks into the United States who are desperately needed here to do machine repairs, et cetera. I will tell you that in applying for waivers of the travel ban, this has been extraordinary. The Biden administration heightened the standards for travel ban waivers, and now only those people who can show that they play a vital role in support of critical infrastructure, or since about three weeks, executives who are directing critical infrastructure or executives who are directing significant economic activity in the United States, can qualify for a waiver. And so we've been quite busy in filing applications for these waivers, not only at US consulates abroad, but also with Customs Border Protection, who has also really supported a lot of people who need very urgently to be in person in the United States and travel to the United States when they're subject to a travel ban. So Shana was just also indicating, well, by air, or by land border. And so we heard a little bit from Andrea earlier about entry from the United States into Canada and how the borders have really been closed to tourists wanting desperately to go into Canada, drive into Canada, visit, but they've been open to essential travel. Same thing in the United States. And so when you seek to enter the United States via a land border entry, it's important that you're able to show that your visit is essential, that you're filling an essential purpose. In the United States, we look to a definition of essentiality in our what's called our CISA, Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Act, which lists out the various domains that are, that are considered to be critical infrastructure and hence essential areas for workers to come in. But generally it's known to be travel, which supports health security, trade, commerce, supply security, and other essential areas. So you'll know when you travel from Canada into the US, it's really important to know your port and know the port personality of the 
Customs Border Protection, CBP officers, when you're entering the United States. It's also very important, as Andrea was also saying, that anyone entering from a land port of entry be prepared, have some evidence from the employer about their entry and how they're qualified to as an essential worker coming into the United States or an essential visitor, so to speak, and that the applicant be prepared to, to make his or her case when they're coming in. By air, it's much more straightforward because we don't have those same restrictions. So you can fly into America and fly down, connect through Atlanta. So when you're talking about making sure that people have planned their trips, one of the questions that comes up is whether commercial workers providing after-sales service can still enter the U.S. as business visitors. Like, What kind of documentation do you recommend business visitors or commercial workers bring with them to support their U.S. entry? Well, I know that our Canadian colleagues will talk about after-sales service later, but like in Canada and the United States, for most activities involving work, you need a visa authorizing you to work in the United States. One exception to that is what's called commercial workers, and you see a lot of folks coming down from Canada to uh, install machinery and systems, repair, troubleshoot, maintain, or give some sort of training to a U.S. workforce. So still in the United States, if a machine or system was manufactured outside the U.S., very important, outside the U.S., that can be Canada, it can be Italy, it can be Germany, or wherever, but outside the U.S., and if there's a contract of sale calling for the installation, repair, maintenance, troubleshooting, or training in place, workers with specialized knowledge can enter the United States for purposes of that after-sales service. But in the United States, I find generally it's, it's a little bit more important with our CBP officers to make sure that the workers are providing evidence when they enter the United States that in fact the machinery and system was manufactured outside the US, that there is a contract. So you wanna make sure you give them an excerpt from that contract and you wanna make sure that you give them a letter as well and prepare them also for how they express themselves when they're entering the United States as a commercial worker. And you know, that raises a good point when we talk about having your documentation in place and, and when you present yourself at the U.S. Port of Entry. Do you have any updates on the visa processing or the liaison for Customs Border Patrol? Well, there are a few updates on visa processing generally. We are so fortunate that Canadian citizens who fall into a very defined list of professionals with certain qualifications are authorized to enter the United States and to apply for a visa authorizing them to work in the United States directly at either the airport at preclearance or at a border port of entry if they're termed to be essential at this point in time. That's the TN visa category. Very important, and I cannot say this enough, there's a list of professions, they're very well defined. If you are an engineer, you may apply to come to the United States with a TN visa to work as an engineer, and you need to have a bachelor's degree, generally. That does not authorize you to come to the United States to be a manager. And I, I cannot tell you how often I see folks apply and they say, well, I, I have a degree in engineering, but I'm going in to work as a manager. That likely will not work for you. It's very strict that if it's on the list, you need to be working in that particular profession. And we see a lot of issues there. 
We also see a lot of issues with management consultants. You have to make sure you're not an employee. You're not a manager. In fact, you are a consultant consulting regarding the management of a particular business. In addition, it's sort of nice for multinational companies that Canadian citizens can apply for a multinational L transfer directly at a Canadian port of entry. This is a wonderful benefit because otherwise, when you have to petition in the United States, I know anyone familiar with L visa processing in the United States knows that it can take months and it's an extraordinary amount of paperwork versus a border adjudication of a clearly presented case. That's working very well as long as you provide the documents required to show the relationships and the qualifications of the individuals. But fairly new is that when you're looking to process an extension of that L visa, that is no longer being entertained at the ports of entry. And so you have to think of other methods to extend particular L visa authorization. And finally, just today, very interestingly, we received a note from the U.S. consulate in Toronto expressing that, that it might be possible for Canadian clients of ours who have a very large business uh, in Arizona to actually process their e-visa revalidations via mail, even though they're here in the United States. Uh, the consulate knows they're here. That may be something, I think it's something brand new that's just come into effect uh, by virtue of Canada opening up. So I thought I would throw that out there too. Maybe No, and that, that kind of current information is key. And before I come over to you, Brett, to talk to us about the international experience, one of the questions that we received was whether there are quarantine requirements for people coming from Canada back into the U.S., whether it's a U.S., citizen returning or you know, a Canadian traveling down there. Do you have corresponding quarantine requirements? Quarantine in the United States has been something that's been governed very particularly by local requirements. So here in Georgia, we opened last May as the first state to reopen in the United States. Other states did impose certain types of quarantine requirements or their localities did. I think most of those, if not all of those, are gone at this point in time. Although a lot of times if you are coming as a business visitor to the United States or a visitor, you do always have to look at corporate policy because I see a lot of my larger corporate clients still imposing some sort of quarantine or work from home requirement when folks are traveling internationally and then coming back into the U.S. Thank you very much, Terry. So, Brett, I'm coming over to you. We've talked a lot about the U.S. to Canada experience, and Terry, that was incredibly helpful, and the Canada-U.S. experience. What about the international travel to Canada from outside of the U.S.? Who's permitted to come here if they're not coming from the U.S.? Can you jump in on that, Brett? Absolutely. So, Canada obviously has a special relationship with the United States, and as a result, we have a travel ban vis-a-vis -vis the United States, and then we have a travel ban vis-a-vis -vis the rest of the world. And unfortunately, if you're anywhere but the United States, or if you're entering Canada from anywhere but the United States, it's not your citizenship, but it's where you're entering from that matters. The COVID era process is far, far worse for visa-exempt foreign nationals. Those are the people that don't need a, a visa to visit Canada generally. And the reason it's worse is that visa-exempt foreign nationals are typically outside of COVID, allowed to make a work permit application at the point of entry, but not currently with the international travel ban. So you then have to go through all these processes abroad. You have to deal with the travel ban. You have to go through the immigration piece. So finding an immigration stream, which we'll get into later and making sure you fit it and getting an approved work permit. 
And you have to get your biometrics, which is a, a retina scan and a thumbprint that's required for the issuance of a work permit. You have to deal with all those processes abroad that before you would have just done at the point of entry. And then at the point of entry, you have to deal with the quarantine exemption if that's applicable. So needless to say, this adds weeks and weeks to the processes. For the visa required foreign nationals uh, to Canada, the process is largely the same with just more delays plus the travel ban and, and the quarantine aspects. So I'm just going to quickly go over some of the most relevant travel ban exemptions. There's actually 24 of them, but a lot of them are for diplomats and crew and things that don't matter to our audience. The most common one for our audience is temporary workers holding a valid work permit. And that's the big difference. Before they would apply for their work permit here, now they have to have it approved in principle with an approval letter, and then they actually pick it up and have it printed at the border. The problem is, you know, in Germany right now, that's five weeks processing time. In Australia, it's nine weeks processing. Uh, there's countries that it could be 16 weeks. And so mobilizing internationally takes a lot longer. And there are categories beyond this, but they're just very narrowly construed. There is an essential services category, but it's not our broader quarantine essential services category. It's essentially technicians or specialists who are coming to install or repair equipment to support critical infrastructure. And then foreign government officials that can come straight to the border, don't have to apply for a work permit in advance. There is a national interest exemption, uh, which Andrea used at the outset of the pandemic a few times with success, but it's meant to be used, and this is their language, in exceptional circumstances only, all other exemptions must be considered. First, it is not meant to be a workaround. That's the government's language on the national interest exemption. And now it's a full application process and it takes several weeks and what I found is if you make a work permit application and you flag it as urgent and essential and you follow up on them, they're going to process the work permit in a few weeks anyways. You can speed them up if you can get a hold of the visa office. So there's not much of a difference between a work permit application and the national interest exemption. We do let immediate family members of Canadians and permanent residents come now, but not necessarily for foreign nationals. So if you're an immediate family member of a foreign national. So you think of your workers, family members, spouse and kids. They have to make an application for travel authorization to reunite with their family members. And at the beginning of the pandemic, they actually, you would actually have to send the, tr the worker ahead so they could be reunited. Now, fortunately, they're being lenient on that and they actually will give you the travel authorization so you know the kids can travel with mom and dad because it was a bit ridiculous at the beginning. So returning to the workers with an approved work permit, that will be your predominant category. In addition to the work permit delays themselves, these biometrics cause significant delays. There are closures of visa offices. You might have to travel. In Australia, for example, they only have Perth, Sydney, and Melbourne. So you might have to get in a flight. And then there might be a lockdown in Sydney. And your flight might get canceled. So that, that's a big problem. Switzerland doesn't even accept biometrics. And in the end, you might have to do 14 days on the back end of a quarantine. So all this is to say it takes way too long. Fortunately, the quarantine exemptions are the same vis-a-vis -vis the states and the rest of the world. Who's eligible for a quarantine exemption? So essential services, uh, which is a very broad, uh, that list is broad. And, and there's a good arguments there. Cross-border workers who travel regularly, like every week, medical, trade or transport, and then fully vaccinated persons being the new one. Uh, and that's a bit of a, a special flower of a category. Well, I mean, I talk about special, special friends, special categories. If it's so much harder to travel from 
outside the U.S. to Canada. Why not, for international travelers, why not just take a trip to Disneyland on the way to Canada? Like, just, you know, keep it interesting and easy. Come from the U.S. I completely agree. And that's actually my current recommendation. And I had seven workers in the last 10 days do that. But not that it, we are promoting Disneyland. We're in no way affiliated <laughs> with Disneyland. Now, subject, of course, what Terry said, that, you know, if they're from Europe, they might not be able to get into the United States. So it depends on the facts and the circumstances. But if they can get into the United States, the process was very smooth getting into the U.S., provided they can get an ESTA. I did have one individual with difficulties getting in an ESTA. But then they do have to do everything at the border. So that's when you have to prep them for the travel ban, immigration, biometrics, quarantine arguments, all at the point of entry. And everyone has to be prepared for this like four-hour process where the employer and the lawyer and, and the workers are all in a WhatsApp chat because it, it, it is very complicated. But it cuts down weeks and weeks of processing. Fair enough. And so uh, thanks a lot for that, Brett. Andrea, I'm going to come back to you now. Can you give us a bit of a primer on Canadian business immigration? A basic question I have, and I think a lot of our audience members have, is what is considered work in Canada? That's a great question, Shana. And the immigration legislation says that work is activities for which a wage is paid or commission is earned, or arguably more importantly, anything that is in direct competition with the activities of Canadian citizens or permanent residents. So what does that mean? It's often surprising for my clients when they realize that what they are bringing a specialized service provider into Canada to perform is considered work, even though that specialized service provider is not employed by a Canadian company, paid by a Canadian entity. So if individuals are coming to Canada to consult, to fix specialized machinery, to do anything that they are getting paid to do, even if the payment isn't going directly to them from the Canadian source, it's generally considered to be work. But why does this matter? This matters because it's illegal to work in Canada without a work permit or under an eligible work permit exemption, because Canadian legislation has lots of work permit exemptions. And we often look to those because sometimes work permit exemptions are easier to access than a full work permit. But it is important that employers do this analysis at the outset because there are consequences both for the international business traveler as well as for the company. Fines and possible jail time if they have somebody working for them without proper authorization. What best practices should companies keep in mind when considering international business travel in 2021? Great question. I would argue that it's more important now than ever to really have a systematic process or an immigration or business traveler policy. Another recommendation I have is that the immigration or the cross-border function be centralized in one department or with one person, because it's often HR is the obvious place for immigration to, to reside when, when a company is hiring a foreign national. But so often executives who book their own business travel to Canada don't tell anybody they're going. Or often it's you know supply chain that hires or signs contracts with international service providers. So often there are individuals throughout an organization who have some control over or responsibility for immigration. And because there is such a risk these days that the 
company or the employer or the Canadian receiver of these services, there's a risk. I don't want to jump over some territory that Brett is meant to cover if we don't run at a time, but there's significant consequences. So just being methodical about it, giving some thought to it, giving somebody a point person in an organization. Well, and, and you teed Brett up nicely. Speaking of, you know, taking, taking my work, Brett, can you move us into the concept of temporary foreign worker programs? What's the general rule in Canada for hiring a foreign national? And do you think that's something that should be avoided? Yes, to answer that briefly. Yes, I do think <laughs> it should be avoided. <laughs> so temporary foreign workers is actually a program in our system that follows the general rule for immigration, whereas foreign national kind of applies to everyone. And ideally, your workers are not in the temporary foreign worker program. And here's why. There's this philosophical disconnect between employers and the government. Employers tend to want to hire the best candidate, the chosen candidate. Usually they come to me with someone maybe already hired or certainly about to be hired. The government, however, is committed to hiring Canadians and permanent residents first where they meet the job requirements. So that's the philosophical disconnect. You know, our, our whole system is meant to be facilitated to business, but yet protect Canadian jobs. And there's a bit of a tension. The general rule when hiring foreign nationals is that an employer must conduct a bona fide job search for Canadians and prove that none were qualified or available. And this is called the labor market impact assessment process, LMIA. And you pay the government $1,000 and you wait weeks or months potentially for them to come back and hopefully say, we agree that no Canadians applied and it's a benefit to our labor market for you to hire this foreign national in this instance. But we're watching you, basically. And if you go through that process, you have to advertise in a certain way. There's LMIA compliant advertisements. You have to have the job duties, the benefits, the wage on your job ad, typically. And obviously, if you're hiring an executive, you don't want to put the wage on there because that's usually a negotiated term. They have increased flexibility on that point over the years for higher skilled, higher wage jobs. But that, that was the rules. They want the wage on there. And then you actually can't give the person a raise because you're advertising a, a certain salary for Canadians. You can't then give a person a, a raise during the two-year work permit that they are given as a result of the LMIA because you should have offered that salary with the raise to the Canadians. So you have to bake in even raises into the advertisements. You can't oversell or undersell the qualifications. Sometimes employers get tripped up by saying, you know, five years work experience or a PhD is required, but then their chosen candidate doesn't have those requirements. And if you don't, you're not going to be able to then bring in the worker you want. And nowadays there is some more flexibility. Like I said, there are some jobs you cannot avoid getting an LMIA, certain academics, certain hospitality jobs. And there are some categories that have kind of dropped the advertising requirements or make it easier and more streamlined, such as some new tech positions under a, a global talent stream. But for the most part, it's difficult. If you're hiring in low-wage positions under a provincial threshold, you have a cap on the number of foreign workers you can hire. And right now, food and hotel workers can only be hired if you have under 6% unemployment. But there's a note on the government's website that says, thanks to COVID, everywhere has more than 6% unemployment. So good luck with that. And <laughs> It's just a process, the LMIA process is one to be avoided at all costs. It's lengthy, it's complex, it's expensive. 
The compliance rules that I'll get into later are worse. The audit risk is higher and you have to justify every single line of your submission. So Andrew is going to talk about the LMI exemptions and they are absolutely the way to go. When you talk about that, one of the challenges, of course, is some of our provinces are so large geographically that what might be the economic situation in the greater Toronto area is certainly not the experience in northern Ontario. So, yeah, a bit of a broken system. Andrea, what are some of these uh, more popular LMIA exemptions that Brett seems to love so much? Certainly. There's a number of them. So I'm just going to highlight some of the most popular categories. First, they're under free trade agreements. There usually are facilitated work permit categories. So Terry talked about TN work permits. Those are in Canada, we call those, we used to call them NAFTA professionals under the North America Free Trade Agreement, but now those are KUSMA professional work permits. KUSMA being the Canada-US-Mexico agreement. And that is a great category because those types of work permits can be renewed almost in perpetuity, you could, and so they're great. That's for your US or Mexican engineers and geologists and, and scientists, so on and so forth. There is a unique program called Francophone Mobility. I always mention this because as part of Canada's policy goal to increase immigration to Canada from French speaking individuals who are destined to provinces other than Quebec, this is an amazing category where it applies. So if you are wanting to hire someone and they happen to be a francophone, whether they're from Quebec or another country, even if there's no French speaking requirement of, of the job, this is an amazing category. On intercompany transferees, those are the L1As and the L1Bs that you heard Terry speak about to the US. The Canadian version of the L work permit category is the intercompany transferee category. It applies to those entering Canada from all over the world if they are eligible. And it's very useful for situations where there, are, there must be a multinational organization or a company that has a presence or an entity in another country other than Canada. And where that is the case, individuals that have worked outside of Canada for that company for at least one year in either a senior position, like a senior managerial position, or a very highly specialized position, it's fairly easy to leverage this category to transfer them to Canada in a similar position. But I wanna just talk about my favorite category called the significant benefit to Canada category. This is one that some immigration lawyers are, are, are timid to use, but I know it's a favorite of Brett's as well because we've talked about that. This is what I recommend when I get a call on a Friday afternoon saying, Andrea, we've got to send somebody to Canada this weekend or next week. And there's a really strong argument to be made that you can't wait to get the LMIA that Brett hates. We all like to avoid the LMIA where possible. So significant benefit to Canada is for individuals whose presence in Canada will create or maintain a significant economic, social, or cultural benefit to Canada. I've also used it in situations where there's an environmental benefit, or these days, if it's a COVID benefit, it seems to work. They're highly discretionary. So I always caution that there's a risk of refusal, knock on wood, and I've got a wooden table in front of me. If you put together a good application, it is usually successful. So it's it gives us flexibility. So there are lots of ways to be creative and, and imaginative in applying immigration law principles. 
Thank you so much. So not to turn things, and I feel bad saying this, not to turn to the bad news or the, the downer, Brett, can you take us into an overview of an employer's immigration compliance obligations and specifically walk us through the penalties for not playing ball? Absolutely. But before I get into the bad news, I will, I'll add on to Andrea's comments there that I, I do love the international mobility programs. Significant benefit is a favorite of mine. I find that you can utilize your clients' connections they've already made. You know, if, if they're investing in a community, probably the municipality or the provincial government or local stakeholders are willing to write letters of support. And that helps make this argument that they are of significant benefit. They're creating jobs, they're creating investment. And that tends to go a long ways. So I do love that category. And then the other one that I use regularly, and it's too big of a category to get into on our panel, is the provincial nomination category. Each province has its own immigration stream that nominates someone for a work permit and permanent residency. And some are better than others. So it depends where the person's going. But once you get that provincial support, everything else falls into place. It's a very strong nomination certificate to have in, in your workers' hands when they're crossing into Canada. Plus, their whole family gets nominated with them, but it only works when they're moving here. I feel so, like you're stalling to get into the employer compliance. Uh, I feel now, like you don't want to talk about the penalties, Brett. Come on. Now the bad news. So employer compliance is unfortunately a fundamental part of the immigration process. IRCC has said, Immigration Canada has said, you know, a new employer has about a 25% chance of getting reviewed over the six-year period. I think it's less than that in reality, but you want clients and employers to know that they may get spot audited, randomly audited. They also could get target audited. They don't use the term audit, but I will, because I find that clients conceptualize that better. So it's best if you approach immigration from a compliance mindset from the beginning and not try to figure it out once you've been audited. So it's important that you know your responsibilities first and foremost. Work authorization is a big one. Employers are deemed to know whether a worker has the ability to legally work that job in Canada or not. So you're essentially guilty until proven innocent on that. And the only defense is due diligence. So make sure that your workers have work authorization in place at all times. And if you have a big workforce, that can be a whole regime. You need to keep all of your documentation related to each foreign worker for the audit period, which is six years from their start date. Keeping in mind that the people involved in the employer side submissions may not work there five years later. So the paper needs to speak for itself. Be prepared to justify every single line of either the offer of employment you submit for the LMI exempt people or the LMIA application you've made and make sure everything's truthful and accurate. For the LMIA exempt people, you have to be able to prove that you provided the worker with substantially the same wages and working conditions or at least not less favorable than. So, you know, if everyone in your workforce gets a raise, that'll be okay for LMIA exempt. But for an LMIA worker, as I said before, no raises. And you have to pretty much give exactly what was advertised. Keep in mind that they may ask for all of your search notes. If you have a search committee, if you have a process that's formalized, they may ask for those, especially if you have a collective bargaining agreement that attaches to your search. There are new COVID-19 related employer compliance requirements that have been brought in under the Quarantine Act, and employers should be aware of them. You have to pay them from day one of quarantine, and that is probably the most annoying. They then aren't actually supposed to work in most cases unless they are providing an essential service. But I would say that's the rule that employers and employees ignore the most and then would rely upon the argument that they're in this broader group of essential services if audited on that. Employers are expected to assist with basic necessities, 
monitor their employees' health if needed, never ever encourage them to break quarantine, and then be truthful and accurate in any supporting documentation you provide. And they will phone the employer. And if they do that, they're gonna phone the employer you know, in the first 24, 48 hours after quarantine begins or after a quarantine exemption is granted. And I can't stress this enough, the penalties are real. If you come under a review, an audit, you are likely to face a hiring freeze during that review. So if you're an employer who has a large foreign national workforce, think like a post-secondary institution, you could be frozen on hiring all foreign nationals during the review, which could take weeks, but could take months. You may, if you're found to be non-compliant, you may receive a warning. That's probably the best case scenario. You might have a ban on hiring foreign workers for up to two years or permanent in very serious cases. I've never seen that. You could be publicly shamed on a list of non-compliant employers. They can revoke existing work permits. There can be fines up to $100,000 per violation or up to a million dollars globally. And then there's still the possibility of criminal penalties for fraud or abuse outside of the immigration legislation. So the penalties are very, very real. That being said, the best practices that I wanna talk about, and I'll just quickly hit them, are meant to keep you safe. Know your responsibilities, centralize and standardize your immigration process, focus on compliance from the outset, keep your staff trained and controlled on immigration, don't let it get too diffuse within your organization. Consider your immigration options early in the hiring process and have an HR file for every single foreign worker. And if they lose their work authorization, it's pencils down. That's the end of it. They, they can't work. They can't, it's not legal for them to work anymore in Canada, so they have to stop. If they've worked illegally for a while, you still have to pay them. That would just compound the problem. But pencils down the moment you find out. I feel like you've properly cautioned employers because it is one of those things that, especially when you're talking about all the bureaucracy, that it can get really fatiguing and people say, well, you know, what's the problem if I just cut a little bit of corners? So I think it's really helpful if people remember why it's so important to get professionals and experts like you and Terry and Andrea involved in this so that we don't have to get criminal counsel involved in that. <laughs> Thank you so much. We've been answering questions as we go along and you've done a fantastic job. I have one more and it's moving, I think to you, Terry, is where you have a lot of employers in Canada right now dealing with employees working remotely. They might like to go down to sunny Disneyland for two months and still clack away on their laptops and get their work done. And this savvy employer asks, do they need a visa or a, a work permit because they are going to be working when they're down in the US? And sometimes there's some complication where it may be a wholly owned subsidiary of a US parent company. Can you comment on that, Terry? It's something that like we're dealing with quite often with our Canadian employers. Yeah, it's something that we've been dealing with an awful lot in the US as well. Generally, I mean, fortunately, Canadians are visa exempt. So Canadians may travel to the United States without a visa. However, if you come into the United States as a visitor, it does not authorize you to work in the United States. And this interpretation extends also to remote work in the United States, particularly on a protracted basis. The other big issue is, and, and uh, I know that uh, our friends in Canada are also very much aware of this, if someone's coming to the United States and, and here in the United States and on a Canadian payroll or a payroll of another uh, company in another country throughout the world, 
the longer that you're here, the greater the probability that your company will have not only legal liability in the United States, but also tax liability in the United States. And so there's a lot of issues which would normally steer me to evaluate very closely how long someone might be traveling here, what their purpose would be here. And I would typically suggest processing a visa authorizing that individual to work in the United States, if at all possible, to avoid that liability for the Canadian parent uh, in tax and legal areas and also for the individual. And Andrea, can you briefly comment on the Canadian perspective? Certainly. I always tell my clients that the Canadian immigration rules haven't caught up with our global economy in that it clearly states in Canadian immigration policy that to work in Canada remotely for an international employer, an employer that's located outside of Canada, you don't need to hold a work permit. That said, you need to be in Canada legally in some way, but often this question comes up in, in spousal situations where, where someone is in Canada to be with their Canadian partner and they're waiting for their permanent resident application to be processed or they're here as a visitor and they're working remotely for another company. But if somebody is outside of Canada, so somebody is in the US or they're in Europe working for a Canadian entity, they don't need a work permit either. And we've seen so much more of this happening during COVID because people couldn't travel to Canada or once they began working remotely, it didn't really matter if they were working remotely in Toronto or, or Bangladesh. The issue comes up though, particularly in new employment situations, if an individual isn't in Canada and hasn't been issued a work permit, which arguably they do not need to work remotely for their Canadian employer, they can't get a social insurance number. And then that creates an, a, an issue. And Terry suggested there's tax liability. Certainly that, that is something that needs to be considered. And I know that there are many employers who are scratching their head right now, but you don't need the Canadian immigration approval. And you, you guys have been fantastic and taking the questions as they came along certainly gave us an opportunity now to invite Brad, I'm afraid to ask you whether there are any, you know, closing cautions or concerns you might have, but do you have any comments that you'd like to make in closing from the Canadian experience? Fortunately, since I had to talk about LMIAs and employer compliance, I can now end on a bit more of a positive note. I do want to put everyone at ease that all of this, you know, the travel ban, the quarantine compliance, it need not be feared. Canada does have a very strong business immigration regime. Canada has specific stated goals of rebuilding our economy and our declining birth rate through high-skilled immigration. Employers can usually get the people they want with the right planning by going in eyes wide open and having a compliance mindset from the get-go. Sure, the COVID era means that there's this immigration piece, this travel ban and the quarantine exemption to worry about, perhaps for years to come vis-a-vis -vis certain countries. But for those who fit the rules, Canada has been and will remain open for business. I like the way that sounds. Terry, do you have any uh, comments you would like to make in closing with respect to the U.S. experience? Come on down. We're open. <laughs> well, and thank you very much for joining us. I think one of the issues that so many of our listeners probably have in the back of their minds, I know everyone's tuned in on behalf of their employers, but there's also that piece where we've become so accustomed to moving fluidly back and forth across the border that we all have very much, I know I did, that's why I asked to be a part of the program today so I could bug you guys with all of the questions, but it, people have the personal experience that they're really looking to get back to the States, get back to Canada and get back to business as usual. Andrea, any comments from you? We have a few minutes left and anything you'd like to cover? 
I may have seemed overly pessimistic at the beginning when I was talking about how complex business travel is these days in the COVID era. But to let me be more optimistic, I am optimistic naturally. When your employees are properly prepared and they have been briefed on what to expect, they've downloaded the proper mobile app that they need on their phone and have uploaded their proof of their vaccination through the Arrive Can app, and they have done their pre-travel COVID test no earlier than 72 hours before the scheduled departure of their flight to Canada. And they also have well-organized documented materials explaining why they're eligible to come to Canada now and what document or category they, they, they fit within. Things generally go smoothly. We do run into issues where airline personnel or rogue border officers make mistakes, but that's when folks like Terry and Brett and I are, are on call for those phone calls and, and, and do what we can to navigate those, those problems. I can't reinforce that enough is that we have such a great, robust team of immigration lawyers throughout the ELA network. And these are Terry, and thank you for joining us, but Brett and Andrea, you're certainly who we look to in Canada. It doesn't matter, like you said, it doesn't matter which jurisdiction in Canada someone is, whether it's Atlanta, Canada or Saskatchewan, they can help you with any of your immigration questions all across Canada. And when you talk about ways to mitigate that risk, I can't help but think of the, you know, that 72 hour requirement, make sure you're not there crying at the airport because you got the uh, wrong test or you got it too early or you got creative because they're getting certainly uh, more diligent about testing some of those. We're seeing some of those charges, right? So I would really like to thank you all for our, your conversation today. It's been a lively program with some great insights from a panel of amazing experts. I'd like to turn it back now to the host to close out the program. Thanks, Shana, and also to our panel for sharing their thoughts and advice on today's topic. If anyone would like to connect with our lawyers on the program, please search for them on the ELA website at ela.law. There you can sign up to receive invitations for upcoming webinars, download white papers, get access to on-demand content from our online library, or use the ELA's exclusive Global Employer Handbook. You've been listening to Employment Matters, a podcast brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance, the world's largest network of labor and employment lawyers from the best law firms around the globe. I'm Pete Waltz. Thanks for listening.